It's 42 years old in 2020, but unlike most people in their 40s, the Cape Town Cycle Tour shows no signs of decline or of slowing down. The iconic race is now as much a part of the South African sporting landscape as the Comrades Marathon. Its world-class organisation, coupled with unparalleled scenery, makes it a bucket list event for every cyclist and many non-cyclists. 35,000 participants riding over a 109-kilometre route across the Cape Peninsula requires impeccable logistics, planning, cooperation, a little luck and a big sense of humour. Cape Town Cycle Tour organiser Dave Belez is the man tasked with bringing all these moving parts together. He has to ensure that the iconic event meets the expectations of first-time riders and of those doing the tour for a tenth time or more. I'm Craig Ray and it's a great pleasure to welcome Dave onto the Maverick Sports Podcast today. Hi Dave. Great to be with you. (laughs) It's been a tough week leading up to this uh, cycle tour. You've had some tough ones, but I suppose let's just jump straight in. Coronavirus (laughs) has been the talking point and it's a big issue around mass gatherings of people. And uh, as we said there in the intro, 35,000 cyclists, there's probably a lot more partners and kids that come down with people. So how many people does it bring into the city roughly? So from outside of the country, about 8% of our numbers will be inbound. So 2,500 internationals, we're expecting to be here for the event. Uh, And then about 40% of the participants are from outside the Western Cape. So over and above the internationals, about 40% of our participants will come from Gauteng, the Free State, um, Pumalanga, Limpopo, etc., etc., um, and uh, unlike an event uh, of, of, of the epics nature, they don't come in with large groups of support crew because yeah. you know, it's really a bunch of fun riders that are coming down to participate in the event and then possibly, we hope, stay on and do some sightseeing and spend some money in our wonderful city. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's the, the numbers have been fairly much uh, around that, or so the percentages for the last four or five years. Uh, and uh, once we get through the coronavirus, we will look at, at at improving our international participation. So the coronavirus, it's the big talking point. It's probably going to be a big news story, at least for the first six months of the year globally. Africa has not been too affected by it yet, but uh, there are protocols in place. Now, you've already had a cancellation of a, of a group of riders from Italy that said they couldn't come because they're coming from the red zone. So so just tell us a little bit about where, where the Cape Town Cycle Tour is and its protocols through coronavirus. All right, so we, we're obviously monitoring the situation as it unfolds, and it, it is very much a live situation. Um, as, as we currently sit, the event is in full go mode. There are no cases that have been identified as coronavirus here in South Africa. Uh, and we are taking our lead from our medical team, uh, Dr. Darren Green from MediClinic, who's working very closely with the provincial health authorities and with the national health authorities. So they both issued statements yesterday around South Africa's preparedness for coronavirus. Um, and then obviously we have protocols in place for both at our expo and on the day itself. So, uh, And on top of that, we are doing an early warning system, as it were. We're emailing out uh, all of our international participants with four questions that they will be asked to answer. Yeah. And based on their answers and those questions, they will be given advice as to whether they should present themselves to a doctor in their own countries or on arrival in South Africa just to be checked out. So that's kind of preemptive. Uh, and then there are protocols in place for the actual race there. Anybody presenting at a station, uh, a medical station, there will be a process in place for them to be, if they are suspected of possibly having coronavirus, they will be put into an isolation area. And then the, the medical protocols will kick in in terms of testing, et cetera, et cetera. It's very um, 
I mean, someone could just have a cold or a flu as well. And I mean, there's, a, there's obviously room for a bit of panic, which you've got to try and avoid, haven't you? I think that that's vitally important. I mean, obviously, from a medical perspective, we're encouraging anybody, and this is in any year of the event, if you're presenting with any kind of flu symptom, you shouldn't be riding on yeah. the day. It's that simple. Uh, whether it's coronavirus or simply influenza that you suffer from every year, it's true to say that the majority of participants, when they head out on the day, consider themselves to be in good health. Uh, and we'd mm. like to believe that people are being sensible about that. By the same token, you know, we, we need to be cognizant of the fact that although nobody's tested positive in South Africa for coronavirus, we don't know that it's not out there. So we yeah. just need to be managing the process very carefully. You said they present themselves to medical teams. Will you have a testing station on the day? Is that, I, mean, I don't even know how long the test takes to, to find a result. No, our, our understanding from the medical teams, from um, uh, the guys that we're working with, is there's a, a testing and waiting period of 48 hours. Right. Uh, but I, you know, I would have to defer to the medical teams. Mm. And I believe it is 48 hours, so they, those tests would be done um, off-site. They can't be done, as I understand, mm. on-site. We have 12 medical stations around the route. So they've all been briefed. All the medical stations have been briefed by our medical partners. I mean, it's highly unlikely. We're recording us on the Tuesday before the, the, the race on Sunday. I mean, it's highly unlikely in the short space of time that you know, the health authorities would see fit to call it off. I mean, you can't imagine the virus if we haven't had one positive case in the country sort of spreading that quickly in five days. But I, you've got to be on high alert, haven't you? Yeah. We, we, we are. Um, it, I mean, the situation is extremely fluid at the moment, and we're having to kind of manage the process literally on an hourly basis with all of the partners. Uh, I mean, it's important to note that the provincial authorities and the national authorities are being guided by the World Health Organization's guidelines on mass gatherings, mm. um, as well as uh, dealing locally with the National Institute for Communicable Diseases. And they've already issued a statement, as I understand, to say that they are happy with the current set of systems that the government have put in place at all ports of entry. Mm. Uh, and one has to believe that on the basis that we haven't had confirmed cases in South Africa, that those measures uh, are reasonably significant. And as far as we know, there's no participants from China this year. So, uh, so that's one hotspot sort of ruled out. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, I'm, I'm cognizant of the fact that people are going, just because there's nobody from China doesn't mean that no coronavirus is going to come in. We've, we've looked in depth at all the different countries we've got coming. And as I say, we are sending out a questionnaire to all international participants. And it's not to scare them off. It's, mm. it's more about understanding what our risk is. So we're able to then judge from the answers we're getting in there, whether people have actually been in contact with people from areas that are affected. Uh, and that way, we're able to manage the risk that we have. And you said to me, um, there was one Italian rider who's pulled out and uh, that was just more uh, preventative. You, you didn't want to come from a red zone and, and you're going to refund it. Absolutely. We got a phone call yesterday from somebody in Italy to say that they are based in a red zone and they've opted not to come. Uh, earlier last week, as I've mentioned before to you, uh, mm. we had a party of six or seven Italians that cancelled as their insurance wasn't going to cover them when they landed in South Africa. We're, again, we're managing each of those cases as they, as they happen. It's a massive logistical exercise. This maybe before <laughs> give us an idea of of the scale of of shutting down half the city for a few hours in the morning, like six hours on a Sunday, and 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 yeah, you know, it stretches out over a hundred kilometers over the peninsula. Just try and give us an, a sense because you know, something like coronavirus throws another curveball at you that you could probably do without considering the scale already we could do another podcast just on the wind or the fires or the water or, or the water drama so so yes i i just happen to be a small cog in a fairly significant engine i'm i'm the guy that gets to do the talking yeah uh, and work closely with my media team but there's don everett who's our, our ops director and it is a massive logistical undertaking it really is um we're shutting the
the city down effectively. And certain parts of the city were actually isolating. If you consider places like Simonstown, uh, Misty Cliffs, Scarborough, Cormacay, they're all shut off. Uh, if, if you're living in Clifton and you're living on the seaside of the road, those roads are closed for probably seven, eight hours for the better part of the day. And it's being able to manage the expectations of the residents of the city of Cape Town as well as our participants. Um, and then, you know, it's simple things. If there's a crisis off the route, we need to be able to react to Mrs. Jones, who maybe goes into labor and we need to get her to a hospital and she lives in an area that's isolated. So it's it's managing both the event itself and the residents of the city of Cape Town. And, and uh, yeah, something like, a, I suppose, helicopter support and all those kind of things are, are in place? Yeah. We, we have an unbelievable relationship with the provincial authorities, the emergency medical services, and then the city of Cape Town and, and their medical team and disaster management. So we all work together. The event, funnily enough, on the day is not managed down at the event precinct. The event is actually managed out of the Provincial Disaster Management Center oh, wow. uh, in Tigerberg, uh, where all the relevant role players are sitting in a room. And it's, it's, it's quite an impressive undertaking because you're talking about all arms of, of provincial government and city in a room together. It sounds shocking to say, but we treat the event as a rolling disaster. It, it was nicknamed that by the by the team a number of years ago. We know there are going to be incidents on the route. We mm. know that people are going to have bumps and scrapes and falls. We don't know where, we don't know when, and we don't know the severity. Yeah. So it's being able to react to, to each of those incidents as quickly as possible and having the resource deployed in a way that you're able to get to people when they need to be gotten to. And that is all managed by the, the entire team, Don, and and his team out at the provincial jock. And on the day, we hand over control to a police colonel because we're a medium risk event as defined by the Events Act. We defer to a, a designated police official who becomes the, the jock commander. So it's a, it's a hell of an undertaking. Um, and how many sort of staff, medical staff are en route, uh, roughly? Uh, do you have no, medical you, stations? No, we do. We have 12 medical stations around the route. We have mobile medics on the route. Um, this year, there's an implementation of uh, a quick reaction unit in four different areas. Uh, so we're able to get senior medical personnel to a point of incident in a hurry to triage and understand what's what, a, what, what you know exactly what's happening in any particular case, it, you know it's often we'll get panic phone calls off the route that somebody's have, has a massive injury and there's blood everywhere, and the reality is that certain wounds bleed excessively but they may not be life threatening. Yeah, uh, and what you don't want to be doing is sending medical resource, significant medical resource, a helicopter, for instance, to somebody who ha- doesn't have a life-threatening yeah. injury, that medical resource needs to make sure that it's being deployed in, in, in a manner that is, is befitting what it is. Through Mediclinic, they've introduced um, a quick reaction in four sectors of the route so we can get a senior medical personnel on site to make sure that we're dispatching correctly. Does this process get streamlined a little bit every year. I mean, you've been doing it for so- yeah. how, how many years have you been involved? I've been involved since 1991. Wow. So what's that? 29 years. Yeah. So I mean, you uh, always in this capacity, or um, the the event has changed over the years. So in the early years, we were all volunteers. I right. was I was part of the Pedal Power Association, and I was simply there in a voluntary basis. In about 1999, mm-hmm. we we professionalised the organisation. Uh, and employed our first number of staff. And then I joined as a full-time employee in 2005. I've been involved as a, as a volunteer chairman of the organizing committee, um, running the marshals, various different portfolios, but took on a full-time role, resigned as a trustee of the trust and took up a full-time role in 2005. So right. yeah, I've been around for a while. So back to that original question. So how how's it sort of refined every year? Does it just get better and better every year in, in that sense? I think the key to the success of the cycle tour is understanding that you you've never refined it enough. 
So we unpack the event every year, every aspect of it, whether it's medical, whether it's the experiential side for the participants, the expo, uh, everything is unpacked. It's stripped out. Are we doing it correctly? Could we do it better? Uh, how do we improve the experience? How do we improve the service? Uh, and then put it all back together again. And um, hopefully it's it's that little bit better. How long does it take the unpacking? I mean, how, your debrief afterwards, I mean, is that months that you sit and go through everything with a fine-tooth cut? Uh, absolutely. It's 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 probably a two to two-and-a-half-month process of sitting down and debriefing with all the various aspects of the event, whether it's marshals, water points, medical, safety and security, bomb squad, you name it. It's, mm. it's everybody. It's a hell of an undertaking. And then and then after that, you probably you draw up an action plan and then you – start the organizing of the next year's one. Is, is that pretty much it? That's pretty much it. There's a full-time team that operates 365 days a year on the event. There's events around it. I mean, you've got the Lifestyle Expo, and they've sort of come along over over time. They, they weren't there originally. What do they add to the event? As I said to somebody a couple of years ago, you can get on your bike and ride around the Cape Peninsula any any day of the week, but you don't need us to make that happen. Yeah. What we try to give people is a world-class experience, and part of that experience is the expo. It's the registration it's making people feel special on the day of the event itself. It's giving them an incredible start, making sure that works properly, uh, getting them to the finish safely, and then giving them a wonderful experience in, in the hospitality area. So what we're trying to do is create an incredible experience. That by, Once you've crossed the finish line, you must be looking forward to the next year. So yeah. going, I have to be back for this. And that's really what it's about. It's an experience. And, and that's where the, the additional events have kind of slowly been added on over the years. This past weekend, we had 2,500 kids, 2,000 kids down at the Greenpoint Precinct for the kiddies event. And that was just phenomenal. Mm. I mean, I took a photograph of one family of seven adults with one child. <laughs> They'd come along to cheer their little boy who was doing a 1.2-kilometer loop around the Greenpoint Stadium. And he was wired. <laughs> sounds great. And I guess um, the route has largely stayed the same, but every now and again you have to alter it. I mean, just just take us through this year's route. Is it the sort of standard route we've come to expect over the years? It is. It, yeah. It's it, it's the iconic route, which kind of takes you along the seaboard on the um, False Bay Coast, uh, down towards Cape Point, and then you cross over to Komiki, Nurduk, and then up over Chapman's Peak, which is probably yeah. for our, certainly for our internationals, has, has become that iconic climb with the beautiful views down over Hart Bay and up towards Seikabosi. Yeah. For me, one of the nicest nicest parts of the route is that, that descent on Victoria Drive yeah. down towards the Twelve Apostles and through towards Camp Speckliff, and it's just beautiful. That's quite a relief, I suppose, for a lot of riders who the back end of the field who have struggled up Seikabosi just to sort of get over the top and freewheel down. It's where all the cramping happens because they're freewheel <laughs> down that first section towards the 12 Apostles and there's a little bump as you as you pass 12 Apostles around the corner yeah. at Odacroll and you're required to pedal again. And of course, the legs have been freewheeling <laughs> and suddenly they say, hello. <laughs> then it all sets in. Mm-mm. You know, you've had a few incidents over the years, um, but let's just go back to the beginning quickly. It started in 1978. Uh, couple of guys, part of the was it the Pedal Power Association, they were trying to raise funds for cycling paths in Cape Town, as I understand. It, it, it was more about awareness. So in the early part of 1978, they had uh, something called the Big Ride-In, uh, which was to prove to the, the city fathers that cycling was a thing, that people were commuting, and they needed infrastructure in the city of Cape Town. Uh, and the big ride-in proved to be hugely successful, and it was off the back of that that PPA was then founded. Right. And they put together the first event, was, which uh, was in the latter part of 1978, and that attracted 520-odd riders. Which is fairly significant which for the first time. It exceeded all expectations. Yeah. It, it really did. And the story goes that 
The event was supposed to be held from Cape Town to Worcester and back. That was going to be the initial route of right. the Cape Cycle Tour. It was going to be called then. They they then changed that to go to Cape Point. They were going to go all the way through into the point and then out of the point and, and, and go through to Camps Bay. And there were some logistical issues and permission issues with um, the park, yeah. getting access into the park. So they cut Cape Point out. And thus was born the route which took us through to Camps Bay. When did it become known as we eventually got to know it as the Pick and Pay Argus cycle? Too? So it, it became the Argus in the very first year. Right. So it's the, the Argus got involved as a media partner in that very first wow. year on, on the undertaking that it would be called the Argus. In the latter, very latter part of the 80s, early 90s, Pick and Pay got involved um, along with Mnet at the time. Pick and Pay have been involved since the early 80s, in fact. Yeah, um, and they're still involved. And they it? are still involved. Not early 80s, I beg your pardon, early 90s. Yeah. Um, and, and they're still involved. In terms of getting people into the city, I mean, hotels, as you said, a big number of people come from upcountry. It must be a huge tourism boost to the city. What kind of sort of feedback do you get in, in terms of spend in the city? From the week? So, so I have to be loose here because the last economic impact assessment we did of the event was some years ago. Yeah. And therefore, the figures quoted are, are, are reasonably old. The reason for that is that Ultimately, the cycle is about raising money for charity and to go and spend huge amounts of money on a socioeconomic impact assessment when really what you're trying to do is put that money back into community projects and community upliftment sometimes doesn't make a lot of sense. So that having been said, um, we estimate the economic impact to the Western Cape is in the order of four to 500 million. And that is a figure that certainly the Western Cape government have quoted for a number of years now. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's that's massive for a five-day event. um, A small small bicycle race. (laughs) Well, it was a small bicycle race. 35,000 people. How do you get them started? I mean, those that have ridden it will know, but how do you organize that? I mean, you obviously don't want everyone coming to the start line at once. They all come at staggered times. And and, and, and I, I live in the city, so on Sunday morning, you see a lot of guys freewheeling down to the, the start for their time, which might only be at 8 o'clock in the morning or yeah. something like that. So we flow those folk in over the course of the morning. First group will go off at about 6.15, the racing element, um, with the last group this year going off at around 9.30. And they will come in between 45 minutes and an hour before their start time. So you've got three and a half hours, three hours, 15 minutes to flow those people in. The secret to the success of getting them off is, I was going to say, a closely guarded secret by the team that have been doing it for many, many years. But it it comes with experience. There's a group of, of Rotarians who've been involved with this event literally since the start. Uh, and are responsible for getting that those groups off on time. It does. It seems to work like clockwork. We've the only time we have delays is if we're forced to stop. If there's a, an incident on hospital yeah. bend, we don't want to be sending waves of cyclists into an sure. incident, so we may hold it back for a minute or two. But by and large, most teams, m- most groups will get off on time. You spoke there of the Rotarians. I mean. Do you have more and more people volunteering to help every year or saying, look, I want to get involved. I've done my time in cycling and I feel like it's something I need to do. I wish we saw more. There's certainly in South Africa, the aspect of volunteerism isn't as big as it is in Europe. If you go to to major events in Europe, people are queuing up to volunteer. The Rotarians have been absolutely amazing around this event. They have built it up to what it is today. Um, in partnership with Pedal Power, who started it. But they really have. They they live the event. It's not just one Rotary Club. The Claremont Rotary Club is the key club. They were the, the club that took it on initially. Yeah. But there are over 30 Rotary Clubs that are involved in various aspects of the event. And I think that's a lot of what gives the event its heart, 
So yes, they're paid. Those clubs are paid, but that money is all going back into community. Mm. They're not being paid in their personal capacities. Uh, and that creates this, this incredibly positive vibe around the event and b- b- people who are completely committed to making it work and, and making it fun for the, the, the folk that are participating. It's an aspect that I'd hate to see the event ever lose. Yeah. Well, I don't think it could. I mean, an event this size needs people in different parts of the city to, yeah. to help. Them, and, and again, a lot of experience with these folk, um, and they form part of that debrief because they're our eyes and ears on the ground on the day. So, you know, getting feedback from those Rotarians, those volunteers is absolutely key. Do you participate in the race yourself? Do you have time on the race day? No. Oh. Sadly, <laughs> when I took up a full-time position, I had to give up riding the tour itself. I do a lot of cycling and yeah. a lot of running, but no, unfortunately, uh, as much as I'd love to be out there, I, I have to be with the rest of the team, making sure everything unfolds in, in a way that gets everybody through safely and in good spirits. And you and the team have had some big decisions to make over the years. In 2002, the race was stopped because I think the temperatures got to about 42 degrees uh, at, at one point. So at, at what point do you go, well, it's too hot. We've really just got to stop. So that was actually a watershed year. I was very much involved with the team at the time. It was on the uh, the detour route that we had over Okap Oh, that's right, because Chapman's was closed Correct. at the time. Yeah. And the temperatures on Chapman's, oh, Chapman's Peak on Okap Sevech were the ones that were, were worrying us. And our chief medical doctor at the time came to us and said, I think we have to consider stopping the event. And back in 2002, we didn't have a protocol in place dealing with the stoppage. I mean, it was, we kind of looked at each other. And Basil, our doctor at the time, Basil Bonner, incredibly astute medical man, said, look, we're coping comfortably now, but we're starting to push our resources at each of the water stations. So unless we pull the plug on it right now, we're going to run into trouble later and we're going to put people at risk. Wow. And that was the decision. Ultimately, it all comes back to safety. And the minute we step over that line where we make a decision that could potentially impact on somebody's life, we're in a very bad space. From a protocol point of view, how does that message get to the riders? Because uh, they you know, spread out over 100 or whatever, that's like maybe 50 kilometers across the route. So I say we didn't have a plan in place for stoppage. We had a very uh, rudimentary plan in place. So we had collection points and we stopped the race at various different points around the route. Key personnel were then sent out onto the route to explain to riders what had happened. So I imagine there's some anger and, and no, confusion. No, f- funnily enough, in most cases, there was a huge amount of relief. People were really battling with the heat, and, and for a lot of people, it was the decisions being taken out of our hands. Thank goodness I can get into the shade and I can just relax. It wasn't a huge amount of people because we stopped at kind of mid-afternoon, so the, the, the numbers that we took off the route were not, yeah. hugely significant but it was still the first decision to stop the event early that we'd had to make and then i think 2009 again it had to be stopped because of gusts of wind is, is no, right? no 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 2009 there were some tail end riders that yeah because it must have been it was late in the day that was it? very late yeah. in the day and we took some of the guys that were really battling at the back of the route top of victoria road mm. through to the finish we swept off off the route when the gusts of wind got a bit strong and then in 2015, you had to make a big decision to either go ahead with a 47-kilometer route or not go ahead at all, pretty much. Uh, so, yeah, the, the, why were, was the fires? The so, so, yeah. so uh, again, another watershed year. The fires had happened, and on the Wednesday, we were called into the disaster management city at the center, and we were told that we would have to cancel the event because uh, the fires that had ravished the South Peninsula, although they'd been put out, there was still some burning at Cape Point. But there was a massive risk to respiratory systems with the amount of soot and ash in mm. the area. And if the wind had picked up, they were worried we were going to put riders at risk that were riding through an area that had been burnt out. That was Wednesday. So we took some learnings out of the New York Marathon. It was New York Marathon that canceled after Hurricane Katrina. And right. they canceled two days before the marathon. What happened on the day of the marathon was that thirty or 40,000 people took to the streets of New York and went for a run. 
because they could. It wasn't the marathon, but nobody could stop yeah. them going for a run. Yeah. So we sat down with the city and we said, look, what we don't want, marathoners can run on pavements and in parks. Yeah. Road bikers are going to be out on the road. So if we with cancel the event, yeah. Yeah. and then the, the risk is no longer ours, it falls to the city. So we sat down with the city and we came up with the plan, which was the detour route, the short route to the end of the freeway and back. Uh, and we turned it into a solidarity ride. It was, you know what? There are a lot of people that have lost property. There were lives that had been lost. Let's get out there and ride in solidarity with the folk of Cape Town who've had this devastating fire go through the South Peninsula. And we had our highest turnout ever on the day of participants. And I think primarily because it was only 45 Ks or 47 Ks. Yeah. <laughs> if you hadn't done the training and you were bailing because it was 109, you suddenly went, hey, I can do this. Yeah. <laughs> What's the usual drop-off um, that you see at the start line? Between 12 and 18% wow. between, from, from entry to, yeah. to start. And, and so in this particular day, it was nearly at 100%. Right? We had nearly 100% turnout. It was a little bit scary. And of course, the whole… Did you ever go, well, maybe we should shorten it <laughs> as, a, as a thought process after that? No, the thought process after that was we need to put in a short route. Mm. Uh, so that, that's like something we Like a half marathon. Yeah. yeah. And that's something we are looking at. Logistically, that would be quite tricky, though. To, would it be a completely different route or along the same route in some way they turn off? Or? I'm going to pass at this okay. point. No, so no, there we, yeah. it's, it, it, no, it's, it's, it's very much in planning. Uh, we're working very closely with the city, so, and it's it's understanding that we have as as a, an event currently we have a massive impact on the city and the residents of the city, and we need to run a short route in a way that it doesn't increase uh, substantially this disruption that we have to the city of Cape Town. So it is in planning. We're looking at a number of routes with the city of Cape Town, and we're fairly confident that for 2021 we should see. Uh, uh, a beginner's route. Okay, that sounds good. Maybe <laughs> my, my intro to the race could come through there. <laughs> yeah. And then just the 2017, a few elite groups went off early on. And then massive wind gusts, 100 kilometers an hour. I mean, the city, you couldn't get out of the road, yeah. channeling between the buildings. And you had to call it off. That must have been pretty big because you had 30,000 people waiting on the start line. Yeah, uh, I said to somebody at the time, it was the easiest and the hardest decision we've ever had to make, I believe, at the cycle tour. The easiest decision from a point of view that the minute you believe you're putting people's lives at risk, the decision is incredibly easy to make. It's a no-brainer. The most difficult decision because you understand that there are, at that point, we had about 3,000 internationals that had flown over for this event. And there's the internationals, there's the upcountry riders. It's an expensive event to come down to if mm. you're coming down from Johannesburg. And people had invested a lot of time, a lot of money, and a lot of training pulling the plug on the event because of the wind uh, from that point of view was difficult. But back to the first point, understanding that people's lives are at risk, it was a, a, a no-brainer. It really was. And what was the general reaction from the participants when you made that call? Hugely supportive. I, I have to say that social media played into our hands yeah. because people were social mediaing out what was happening at the start, the wind, uh, people being blown over. I mean, the fact that the world mountain bike champ at the time, Nino Schurter, was blown off his bike in the wind tunnel and had to leopard crawl to the pavement and be helped up. Now, that's arguably one of the most competent technical riders in the world, yeah. uh, the world marathon mountain bike champ, uh, and he couldn't make it uh, at certain parts. So... I stand by the fact that I believe it was the right decision. We got very, very little pushback. Mm. Most people were very accepting of the decision and completely understood. I think they only had to stand at the start line to realize. The terrible part for some people, if you're standing on Edinburgh Drive, which is this unique little spot along the route where there is no wind ever. Mm. Edinburgh Drive just doesn't get wind. And if you were sitting at Edinburgh Drive and you'd seen the cyclists that had turned at the end of the Blue Route and were coming back, 
People are going, where are you going? You know, the event's cancelled. Well, why is the event cancelled? Yeah. Because of the wind, but there's no wind. <laughs> well, that's Cape Town for you, yeah. different weather, different parts of it. But, I mean, these big decisions are all you know, sort of fed into the success of the, of the event. I mean, as you said earlier, we you learn every year from, from it. And um, this year's event, coronavirus notwithstanding, uh, what, what's your sort of long-term forecast for the weather? Is it looking good? <sighs> don't, want to, don't want to jinx it, but what, what is the weather saying four days out, five days out? There, there are a variety of different websites that we, we look at. So there's the two completely different conflicting views on the weather. Wow. Uh, YR.no is, is predicting some moderate wind, uh, moderate to strong, not as strong as we had last year. I mean, we've had we've had five shocking years. The poor cycle to us feels as though it's been in a boxing room with Muhammad Ali. <laughs> um, but it, it, it looks like a 30 to 40 k an hour wind, which, which, is, is, which is perfectly rideable. It's yeah. perfectly safe. Uh, it's you're going to mean that your sub three or sub four or sub five that you were chasing may be uh, under pressure. Uh, but then if you go to Windy, which is another fairly reliable website, they're talking about substantially lower speeds than that. So Thursday, Friday is when we'll have a, a, yeah. a, a more accurate idea of, of exactly what the wind is going to be doing. Temperature-wise, it will be the usual sort of fairly high 20s somewhere yeah. around there. That's the, those are the current predictions. So it started off a week ago that we were looking at early 20s early to mid-20s, which was lovely, overcast. Mm. Uh, the forecast is now clear with a moderate breeze and, and as you say, mid to high 20s. I'm always impressed by, as I say, I live in the City Bowl and within hours of the final riders, it's almost like the tour has been tidied up behind the field. It, it, it's amazing how quickly there's no evidence of the tour by Sunday afternoon in certain parts of, of the route. How do you guys get that right? Years ago, um, one of our key role players, a guy by the name of Ken Sturgeon, together with Alistair Semple, wrote the first environmental management plan around a mass participation event that we're aware of in South Africa. And it was it was something, understanding that we go through a national park, we ride through the Cape Point National Park and Table Mountain National Park. We needed to be very in tune with what and how we were behaving in that park and how we were impacting that park. And the environmental management plan around the event is significant. The um, the waste management plan, which is run by one of the Rotary Clubs for us, uh, literally has a team of sweep guys that will run through behind the event. We want to leave no trace. We want to leave the route cleaner than we found it. And that's, that is that is our primary objective. I must say you succeed because uh, it really is impressive how all evidence of it disappears. And then the finish in, in Greenpoint is a bit of a party atmosphere, isn't it? It is. It's the war stories. It's it, it's it's why I didn't do my sub three, or how I did, or how many punches I got, or where my cramp took place. It's a wonderful place to be, um, and we try to cater for those that want to sit in a noisy beer tent and listen to music, to those that simply want to relax, have a sandwich and a cool drink, and and chat to their mates. So there's something for everybody down there. Well, Dave Bellez, good luck. Good luck with the coronavirus and everything else. Uh, it's been a tough few years, as you said, but it sounds like it's all on track for this year. Yes, let's hold thumbs and let's hope the wind decides to play its part as well and stay away. And if you are riding, just keep uh, watching the media and capetowncycletour.com. You can go have a look there for uh, any updates uh, on, on the situation. So thanks for coming in, Dave. Thank you for joining us on the Maverick Sports Podcast today. This podcast is made possible by our Maverick Insiders. Please consider becoming part of our Maverick Insider community where, for a nominal fee every month, you are supporting quality independent journalism. You also get some cool benefits such as Uber vouchers and engagement with our journalists thrown in. Please go to dailymaverick.co.za forward slash insider to sign up and become part of the Maverick Insider community. Also remember to sign up to our Maverick Sports newsletter which hits your inbox on a Monday and never miss another podcast by signing up via your favorite platform. I'm Craig Ray and thanks for joining us this week.